0: Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year closer to ouradio.org/slash-nach or on my website ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Eov, the Book of Job, Chapter Three. Finally, after one line of introduction at the beginning of the third chapter, which reads, After this, i.e. after the seven days of silence where his comforters waited in silence, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day, and Eov responded, and said, "Vayomar." The word "vayan" is not only used as a response to some other person's previous question, but it could be a statement of distinctive nature. For instance, Miriam goes out in front of all the women, or in front of all the people, and calls out to them, "Shiru l'adunai kiga a uh, During the crossing of the Red Sea, at the Exodus, and there it uses the word "vatan" in a similar way. Um, Here, Eov, if you want to say he's responding to anything, he's responding to his own situation and to his friend's presence and their silence of seven days. Before we begin a discourse on theodicy in this chapter, which is the attempt to justify God's doing in this world, Eov will simply let loose. Uh, simply expressing his pain and his desire to quote Shakespeare's Hamlet, who honestly didn't have anything like Job's problems, to sleep and by sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. The issue of God's righteousness is in this chapter a bit, but really Job just wants to die. And in fact, he wishes that he was never born. And that really is the focus of this chapter. During the course of that expression and exploring his desire to die, Job comes to certain conclusions about man's fate after death, which ultimately get back to the issue of theodicy. But before we take a look at the chapter itself, I need to point out that the format has now become biblical poetry, and the genre is, to some extent, but not exactly, wisdom literature, like that which can be found in Proverbs, Kohelet, the Book of Ecclesiastes, many Tehillim, many Psalms, and in the writings of other nations in the ancient Near East. So let me go through some of the things to look for when one is uh, reading wisdomish literature, which is presented through biblical poetry. First... Biblical poetry is made up of a series of poetic lines, and each line usually has two parts, each of which part relates a similar or parallel idea called a tick bullet. Sometimes the, idea, the, the the ideas presented in the two halves of the poetic line seem identical or nearly identical, or as the radak, the famous commentator Rav David Kimqui puts it, a duplicate idea expressed in different words. So why the repetition then? Well, there are many answers, maybe for emphasis or for amplification or maybe to make it easier for the audience to memorize or maybe it's prettier, more aesthetic. But unfortunately, this is not the forum to tackle the issue of um, why there is um, repetition in biblical poetry. However, many times the second half of the line, really adds something that is not expressed in the first half. Professor James Kugel, who used to be in Harvard and now I believe is in bar Ilan University, explains it as this, not only that which I said in the first half is true, but even this which I'm stating in the second half of the poetic line, even this is true as well. Um, this is the case of Job's first line. Yovad yomi valed bo amar hora gaver. Let the day I was born on be annulled, and even more so, let the night when it was said a man was conceived, let it be annulled as well. Now the words "and even more so" and at the end "as well" are not in the verse, but they are implied by the repetition of the similar idea of the parallel idea in the two sides and the two sections of the poetic line. Not only should the day I was born on be cancelled, but let's go back in time. I wish the night I was conceived on should be lost as well. Secondly, a second note about biblical poetry. Sometimes words are missing from one half of a poetic line, which must be conceptually copy and pasted onto the other half of the poetic line. For instance, the word Yovad in the previous sentence, to be destroyed, to be lost, to be annulled, wishing destruction on the day, must be applied to the second half, to the night where Job was conceived. So even though that verb is missing from that second line of the poem, uh, of that poetic line, it's clearly meant to be there. So, if it weren't poetry, but it were prose, the line would read something like this: Yovad Yomi bo vi yovad, That missing word would be reinserted. Halaila, Asher Amar horagever. Notice also that the prepositions and other parts of speech are sometimes skipped in poetry in order to keep a nice poetic flow. So, the rep- so I inserted the preposition Asher, which. um even though in the poetry it was jettisoned, but conceptually, when you're reading uh, the poetic line, it really needs to be reconstituted. Third, poetry uses metaphor, personifications, and all kinds of imagery to express what is essentially inexpressible. People's deepest feelings, things that can only be feared or or maybe just barely gotten a sense of. So while it's clear that a day and night can neither be cursed nor literally ripped out of the calendar, as if I took a scissors to calendar and ripped out my birthday, then the birthday would actually disappear. But for Job, it is not enough simply to just say, I I wish I wasn't born. He expresses his pain by wishing uh, that that very day didn't exist and that everything that contributed to existence was pulled out of existence. Okay, that should do for a little bit on biblical poetry for now, so let's move on to verse 4, and we'll revisit some other issues and take a look at some other issues of poetry and wisdom literature as we go on. In verse 4, or actually before this, Job said he wanted to curse the day he was born on, and the night he was conceived on. So, he's now starting with the day. But before we look at the actual verses, I want to talk a little bit more about the poetry, but in this case, the beauty of the poetic structure. Eob spends two verses cursing the day he was Born on, and four verses cursing the night he was conceived on. First two, then four. In the day section, both lines have three uh, three sections. That is, each poetic line, instead of having the usual two sections, is broken down into three parts to make up a single poetic line, which makes them a bit more prominent and a bit more expressive. The night part, where he curses the night, which I said is four verses long, and is that is, it's twice as long as the day part, the first and the fourth line, that is, the beginning line and the last line, begin with, they they are essentially three sections long, just like the the day part, and they sandwich the second and third lines in the middle, which are the standard two-section poetic lines, which essentially have... Uh, two parts to them. Following this flowery, intentional, prominent structure, the rest of the chapter really continues on only with two section verses, which are the more straightforward, the more common, the less flowery verses. And therefore, what that does is it makes this cursing section of two verses and then four verses, two for the day and four for the night, it makes the pain and suffering on it much more prominent since it stands out above the more calm waters uh, of the verses to follow. Except for the last verse in the uh, chapter, which is not only a three-line verse, it's a three-section verse, it's a four-section verse, which really stands out, but we'll get that um, a- at the end of this lesson. Anyway, getting to the actual cursing of the day, on that day let there be darkness now this is the opposite of creation terminology let there be light or it says in in Bereshit so Eov essentially uh, alludes to this creation but reverses it and therefore what he's saying is he wishes that the day of his birth his birthday would return into the primordial chaos that existed before God decided to create the world. Getting back to the verse, let God not seek it from above, that is the day he was born on, let light not shine upon it. Nahara is from the Aramaic light, and it is also similar to the Arabic nur, which means uh, light. There is a lot of Aramaic in our book, and in fact, some commentators even uh, suppose that the original book of Job was written by the author in Aramaic, and what we have before us is Hebrew translation. However, there's really no reason to take such a drastic position. In fact, if one studies poetry, any language poetry, one will find that poetry almost always draws from the most ancient forms of whatever language that it's written in. And in fact, sometimes it even uh, goes to other languages. Uh, foreign languages, because the poet essentially is looking for the broadest spectrum of expression. A- and whether he's trying to express something semantically, which is difficult to get one's uh, uh, ideas around, or whether he's trying to produce images which are uh, very, very distinctive or whether he's trying to produce a specific tone, a meter, a sound to the poetry, uh, only by using ancient phrases and and sometimes even foreign languages is the poet able to choose from a broad enough range to really convey what he wants to convey. N'est-ce pas? So, to express um, what we want to express here, or that is, when the poet is expressing what he wants to express... He really is reaching out for some of the most difficult forms of Hebrew and other Semitic languages, and as a result, what we have in the Book of Eov is easily the most difficult and obscure vocabulary in all of the Bible and all of Tanakh. Yigaluhu <speaking in Hebrew> returning to the cursing of the day. Yigaluhu alav anana, yivatu yom. Let darkness and gloom acquire it i.e. acquire the day I was born, let clouds settle on it, let the day cursors, the the kimri reyom, Frighten it or or send fear towards it. I translated Yigaluhu based on the word goel, which means to purchase or, or to redeem, which so that would mean the sense is that let them take possession of it and let them control it. And we'll have a similar idea in the nighttime as well. Kimri doesn't really come from the word mara more, more which, mar, which means bitter, but the Cuff at the beginning, is part of the root. Uh, in Kings 23.5, kimri or Komer, are priests uh, of false gods. And they actually, there in the Book of Kings, seem to be astrologers. So in modern Hebrew, oh, in modern Hebrew as well, a Komer means a non-Jewish priest. Alternatively, Kimri Re could also mean clouds, which would be a good parallel to the Ananim, which he is calling on in the second section of this line to uh, to cover everything. However, I think since we'll meet another date cursors in verse eight at the uh, during the uh, the cursing of the night, it seems to be that Kimri Reyom re are the ones who curse the the day. That, that definition seems much better. Also, once again, Joseph, uh, uh, Job is taking an idea from the Bible. Or the author of Job is taking an idea from the Bible, which was positive—the dwelling of the clouds of glory, the Ananim, on the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, when they were in the desert—and he's asking those clouds to obscure his birthday. Note that he uses the word that, that in the in the desert, the Ananim are on top of the Mishkan, the dwelling tabernacle. But here he says that they should yishkon, they should dwell, using the word, again, Shachan, so therefore he creates a pun against it, and he takes something that was good, like the creation, and or in this case, like the protection that God used to give uh, to the Israelite people with the Mishkan, and he's saying that, in fact, the opposite should take place. And now Eov curses the night for four verses. He curses the night that he was conceived on. Let darkness take. There it is that take again, or acquire the night. The word Lakah means not only literally to take, but it means to purchase uh, or acquire. Like it says like Abraham when he purchased the uh the cave to bury Sarah, it says uh, the uses the word Lakah. Uh, re- returning to the verse, let it not joined, let it not be joined to or literally unified with the days of the year, let it not come into the days of the month. So that night should be like some kind of February 29th in a world where there's never a leap year, which means it never ever reaches that day in the calendar. Yihi galmud altavo rinanavo. Notice the verse returns to the standard two-section poetry. Behold, let that night be desolate, let there be no joyful singing in it. The word galmud is like shakula, meaning a woman who has lost her child. So it fits the mood and the metaphor of how he wishes that not only his conception had been aborted; that his mother had lost him in uh, uh, during the conception process, but even the night itself would have been aborted. Let the day cursors curse it. And again, we had cursors, day cursors in the in the day section, and now we're having day cursors in the night section. Those who are destined to wake the Leviathan. In Canaanite mythology, the Leviathan was a creature. That was destroyed to make way for the creation of the world. Actually, even before Canaanite mythology, it was part of Babylonian mythology. And the return of the Leviathan would in, would signal the end of days. Apparently, the, there were, you know, known doomsday cultists, these Ore Yom, who desired to curse the here and now and to awaken the forces that would bring the end of days, that would bring the destruction of the world, which means that some things never change. This is a good time, by the way, to take a short digression on the state of the text of the book of Eov. Now, there's no doubt that the more difficult a Hebrew text, a biblical text, the harder the scribes had, uh, or the harder time the, the scribes had, in understanding what they're copying from manuscript to manuscript. And the 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 less likely they were to understand what they were copying, the more likely they were to get some small things wrong. So, scholars are tempted here to amend or yom cursors of the day, to or yam simply removing the Cholam, the Vav with the Cholam on top, and replacing it with a Patach under the Yud. Uh, this of course would mean they were cursors of the sea, and that is the dwelling place of the Leviathan, so it certainly makes a bit of sense. On the other hand, though, we had a few verses, verses ago, other type of day cursors, Kimri-Rayom, and therefore there's no reason to assume that this verse is not also referring, that, that it is also referring to Kimri-Rayom or oro day cursors. Um, So, you have to be careful about playing with text and assuming that one read is better than another. Also, once we start with emendations, there's really no end to it. Once I start saying, well, this letter should be that letter, well... You could just make up whatever you want. So the bottom line is we should appreciate and respect the holy text that we have, which has been transmitted from generation to generation with the greatest love and care. And we should assume that the text that we have is accurate. And if it happens to be that occasionally sticking to the existing text makes the read a bit more difficult, so okay, we'll survive. As they say, no one dies from a kasha. Nobody dies from a little question. Because the alternative, which means taking liberties with our holy text, is, well it leads to much, much worse things. Finally, in the final beautiful three-part poetic line that closes up the, the cursing of the night, the entire night from evening to dawn is cursed. Let the evening stars be darkened. Let them in the middle of the night, that is those who are waiting in the middle of the night, wait for light that will not come, and let the twinkling fluttering of dawn never be seen. The fluttering, this word afape, like the eyelids, it, it, it The imagery is that the sky um, is just twinkling and beginning to light at dawn. And it also means, perhaps, that the humans should not awaken to see the day with their fluttering, awakening eyelids. And now, in verse 10 to 13, Eov explains that he's trying to eradicate the day and night of his existence, since he didn't have the good fortune to die before his great suffering began. <laughs> because the portal of my womb, he refers to my womb or his womb in the sense that it belonged to him while he was in utero. Obviously, it was his mother's womb. But for the time he was in it, it was his. Uh, because the portal of my womb did not close and suffering was not hidden from my eyes. Lama lome mi beten yatsati And he goes through the various stages of life. Why didn't I die in the womb? Or why didn't I come out and then perish? Why did they put me on the knees? This is the sense of rearing a toddler in health and in uh, in caring. And what is the breast that I should suckle? I.e. after birth, had they abandoned me, I could have died then. But unfortunately, they cared for me. Even now, I would lie down so I could be silent. I would sleep, and then I would be at rest. All this, of course, in the Hamlet sense of the eternal rest, the sleep that brings the eternal sleep. And now, having come to the conclusion that death is better than suffering, he explores the idea of death as the great equalizer, and it gives him a bit of comfort. Again, the poetry is in a series of two section lines. I'll read it once through from verse fourteen to verse nineteen so that you can get a feel for it. and then I'll go line by line translating <laughs> Okay, from the top, his treatise on how everything is equalized after life in death. Together with kings and world advisors who build necropolises for themselves. Hamimalim Bateyam Kesef, or with officers with their gold who fill their houses with silver. Now I think that this is not referring to their lifetime houses, but um and and, and how they store up their money and their riches in their lifetime houses, but it's referring to the burial grounds of kings and the powerful in the ancient Near East who filled their burial mounds, their sarcophagi, their mausoleums, their pyramids. They filled them with possessions that they meant to take it with them to the afterlife. In fact, I think that the custom is alive and well today. Uh, Pardon the pun. Uh, Eov is mocking those who think that they can take it with them. And it gives him comfort, I think, because his own loss, um, I think what he's saying is, okay, I lost everything, but since in death everybody loses everything anyway, you know, it gives me some comfort that I've just lost it a little bit sooner, and even the wealthy and the powerful who die wealthy and powerful are going to wind up with nothing as well. In this verse, Eov says the word in the first person. So one gets the sense, or it's possible to to say that he's returning to his own personal sense that I wish I had died at birth, which was a few uh, verses ago. However, I really think that we're in a block of abstract philosophy or theology about death as the great equalizer. And he uses the word even though he's referring to himself, he's really still talking abstractly. What I think what he's trying to say is that innocent babes who never acquired anything in their lives will wind up being the same as the aforementioned rich and powerful, which is silenced. Will I not wind up like stillborns or miscarriages like babes who never saw light? Um, And that's his theory, that is regardless of how much money he had or when he had it or how much power he had in the end... You know, what's the difference? Uh, a miscarriage and a stillborn and a baby who never even came into this world winds up in the same place with exactly the same possessions. Sham R'sha'im Chadulu rogez yanuchu talking about uh, what comes after death. There the wicked stop their troublemaking and the weary, probably the weary who became weary because of the troublemakers there they all come to rest Sha'ananu velo shamu prisoners grouped together and are at ease they no longer hear the voice of their taskmaster their overlord their 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 warden and to sum up Eov says katon <speaking in> shamhu <Hebrew> great and small not only in the physical sense but in the you know the powerful and the uh, and the meek uh, all of them are there. That is, they all go to the after, they all wind up in the grave, and a servant becomes free from his master. Now, the word Chofshi is a play on words, since in the ancient Ugaritic, a language uh, of a Phoenician nation on coastal Syria during the 14th century BCE, Chofshi actually means dead or death, and it's used that way um, in referring to Uziahu's uh, departure from his job in the Book of Kings, that he went to the Beit Chofshi which really means the death house, not the free house, So, because death is, of course, the final freedom. Now, I think that Eov may also be referring to himself here, hinting at himself less abstractly, because God referred to Eov as his loyal servant. He said to the Satan, Do you see my loyal servant? So therefore, Eov may not, may not only be saying that the master and slave are equal after death, but that he himself will be dead and free from his master God, which would be right now, in his opinion, a good thing. So if death is the equaler for, is the equalizer for all social iniquities, it should serve to smooth out his own suffering as well. After having spoken mostly abstractly about how death is the ultimate equalizer, Eo will now focus on the fact that there are a lot of people who are suffering. And there are a lot of people whose lives are so bad in suffering that they sincerely hope for death. And he wonders why God needs to give them life. So he raises questions of theodicy, but he doesn't, he, at this point he's not going to try to make any conclusions. Right now he's just playing around with, mostly with the idea of suffering, and a little bit of theodicy pokes in. He has not yet returned to speaking about himself. He continues in the abstract. So previous, in the previous uh, six verses, we had the abstract question, is abstract philosophy that after life, in the grave. Everybody is all equal down anyway, so it really doesn't make a difference what happens in this world. And now he also talks abstractly about those who are suffering and wish they were dead. He's getting closer and closer to returning to his own suffering, but he's not there yet. So verse 20 and 21 read as follows. Why does he, i.e. God, give light, which means life, to Why does he give life to the bitter souls, to those who wait for death? Which doesn't come, who search for it, i.e. they search for death as if it were, a, as if it was a buried treasure. Note the irony between the one who digs his own grave now being compared to someone who does it with as much zest as someone who digs for hidden treasure. <speaking> Still speaking about those who wish for death in the abstract, he continues, those who go from happiness to joy who will exult when they find the grave. We are still asking the question: Why does God give life to uh, the following? And he said, "Here he says to the man, or for the man whose way is hidden, whom God has blocked his way." Eov is really subtly referring to himself because if you remember in chapter one, God was accused by the Satan using the same words. Ba'ado, you uh, laid stones around protecting him, the Satan accused God of doing for Eov, and that's why Eov was so good. And, and there, the word Vayasech, the word Sach, meant really to shield him. It's a laying down of stones to protect his fields, to protect his possessions, and to protect himself. But here, Eov uses the same words, and flips them on his head, as he as he has done quite a few times in this uh, chapter, and as he, as he will continue to do. And he says, Vayasech to mean that God is blocking His path; that is, He's using stones, but to build a cage and a prison rather than a secure wall. And this allows uh, uh, Job to say seg- to, to segue from the theoretical suffering, who wishes his own death, to his own suffering and his own desire to death. So it allows him to jump back to the personal. Indeed, in place of my food, what I have is my moaning, and my roaring pours out like water, which means he can't stop himself. The sorrow is so great that he's unconsolable. And now we have to what is, to to my mind, is perhaps the most beautiful and heartfelt poetry in all of Tanakh. And, of course, I assure you that my translation, which I'm about to give you, uh, and maybe any translation, cannot do it justice Because I feared a fear and it came to me, and that which I dreaded arrived. I could not be at ease, I could not be still, I could not rest, and the troubles came. Eov, I think, is telling us that even when the times were good, he spent all of his life wondering how long the good times could last. And, And on one hand, that's surprising. But if you remember, he used to make these precautionary guilt sacrifices on the chance that one of his kids may have internally cursed God. So even when things were good he was waiting and fearing and waiting and fearing and the fear became a palpable thing kipachat pachaditi, i feared a fear he th- that fear itself became a, a noun an object uh, a, a, a a a physical thing that that caused him to constantly worry and he says velo shalavti velo nachti but Yavo he couldn't be at peace, he couldn't rest, it troubled him all the time, and then, in fact, everything that he was afraid of did, in fact, come. However, Eo, for all of his begging to die, will, in fact, not go gently into that good night, at least not after hearing what his friend Eliphaz advises him. Eliphaz's advice we will see in the next chapter, chapter 4 and on, and then we'll see how Eo fights back, how Eov is not quite ready to give up, um, to go down silently. He wants to have his say, and he wants to say how he feels.